And amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today. Glad that you remember to set your clock forward and you won't be somebody that walks in halfway through the service thinking that they're running just a little late. Um, if it happens, it has happened many times, but if it happens, you're in on the joke and you can bless that person by teasing them after service. Anyway, so Luke chapter 22, verses 21 through 38. We need to get going. It's a long passage, lot to deal with. Um, uh, and, and so I just encourage you to open your Bibles and, and get ready. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. He is about to be uh, um, betrayed by one of the closest to him. Judas uh, has, has conspired with the Jewish leaders. and He's been entered into by the devil. The, the, the conspiracy is full in, in effect. It's underway. And um, Jesus is not going to bow to that. He's got his own plan in place, and he's not going to just give in. He has determined that he's going to celebrate this final Passover with his apostles. And so he sends Peter and John to, uh, to prepare for them in a place that only he knows and they have to figure out along the way. Um, and, and so they go, they prepare, and then later in the evening, Jesus and the others show up to meet John and Peter and enjoy the Passover in the middle of the meal. Uh, as we say last week, Jesus uh, kind of changes gears on them. Instead of just celebrating the Passover, he demonstrates how he has fulfilled the work of the Passover, that he is the sacrificial lamb, and by his blood, he is actually going to establish a new covenant uh, and by his death and the pouring out of his blood. He is establishing a new covenant, a new promise from God that he is going to not just enact, but he is going to sustain. He is going to fulfill it as well. And so, so he demonstrates his own suffering. They don't even see it yet. Like they're, they're hearing it and they, they have an inkling of the suffering. I mean, he's been talking about his own suffering uh, for some time. They're not even fully getting it yet. And so now on this final night, he is preparing them for his death. He is preparing them to face what's going to come as he is betrayed, arrested, and ultimately crucified. And in so doing, he's preparing them for the suffering that they'll face too. Not in spite of him, not because he's taken from them, but because of him. Because of their connection to him, they are going to suffer. And he needs, he intends to make them aware. He intends to prepare them that this is coming, to let them know that this is coming, so that they're ready to face it. See, they've followed Jesus for three years, or for at least or around approximately three years. And so uh, 11 of them are going to follow him even further. And it's not going to be easy. In fact, as history tells us, at least 10 of them were, were, uh, were, were martyred for their faith, for their, their ongoing perseverance and endurance in the face of difficulty. They need to know that they're going to be attacked on multiple fronts. They need to know that they're not being called into a cakewalk, into some life on easy street. They need to know that there is a battle that is raging around them, that there are fronts, that they are surrounded on every side. And because he prepares them, we too can be made ready. We too can be prepared for the, for the conflict, for the battle that we will face. Not simply in spite of Jesus. Not because he's forgotten us or let us go or lost control. But actually because of Jesus. So Luke 22, 21 through 38, we're going to see that unfold as we hear some of the table talk. Some of the, some of the talk that's going on around the table uh, at this Passover and final Passover, first communion celebration. 
Pick it up in verse 21, just as Jesus is finishing uh, his words about, about the Passover, he says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. In the middle of the supper, like he has just passed the, the bread, he has just passed the, the cup and, and said, this is my blood poured out for you. But behold, right here in the middle of this dinner, in the middle of this celebration, the betrayer is here. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them it could be? Who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It's kind of funny, the con contrast there, right? I, I don't want to be the worst. I, I must be the greatest. They begin to, to argue over who's the greatest, compete with one another. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as, the one, as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, just let me just insert this. In John's gospel, this, this phrase doesn't, it doesn't quite grasp the weight because we don't see what he did on this final supper, on this last supper, or this first communion, we don't see him in Luke's gospel standing up at the beginning of the meal and tying a, uh, an apron around his waist and walking to each of his disciples and washing their feet. We don't see the teacher, the rabbi, the master, the one who should have been revered, the one who had the head spot at the table. We don't see him bowing down at the feet of these men who were un. Or, or, or were uneducated, ordinary men. They were just regular Joes. And here is Jesus, who's obviously not just a regular Joe, wrapping an apron and bowing before them and taking their feet in his hands and washing the dust and dirt from them. I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, my, as, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. <laughs> I'm promising you this. You're going to have a place at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon. We, we, we think that he addresses Simon here first because Simon must have said something. And so Jesus begins by, by addressing him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prepared for you, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to him, it is enough. 
But here's the thing. Every one of the Gospels, they give us this view of, uh, of Jesus' teaching in the upper room on this critical night, this, this night where he knows this is the last moment he has to teach them before he faces the cross. He's got to make them ready. He's not sitting around, and it's not just small talk. It's not just chit-chat. Not just talking about the weather. He is preparing them for what they are about to face. These are some of the final moments that he has with his disciples before he is crucified. He wants to make them ready. There is a war raging. As Luke 22 opens, we see the, the, the indications of that war. And all the way in, in, the, in the, the moment he entered into Jerusalem, we began to see the conflict. The conflict between those who are with Jesus and those who are against him. But it became very clear as Judas was entered into by the devil and as he partnered alongside the Jewish leaders to see what they could do to kill Jesus. He wants his followers to be ready. Not just ready to face his death, but to face the troubles that they are going to endure. So the big idea here, the big point, I think, that that the thread that ties these four episodes, if you will, together, is, is Jesus secures our final victory. And he also prepares his followers to face the conflict that we must endure until his return. Let me just tie this together with what we've just read last week as he talked about the institution of the Lord's Supper, the the beginning of the celebration of communion. He secures our final victory. That's what celebrating communion is all about. It's why every week we come, you, you might hear a message that calls you to act or calls you to respond in faith and, and that being played out in your life by your action. But that is always founded in the reality that Jesus died in our place and for our sins. And so before we go out into the world every week, we remember We remember that this is only worthwhile, that this is only purposeful, that this is only even offered to us because Jesus did this work, that he has secured our final victory. But somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we've been misled. We've been made to believe that the the, the lie has crept in, that in following him, all of our problems will be fixed. Maybe you heard this when you were evangelized. Believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. (laughs) And and there is truth to that. One day everything is going to be okay. One day death. You'll never, you'll, you'll not experience it. You'll never see it. It won't be anywhere near us. One day the pain and suffering of this life will be removed from us completely and totally. Somewhere along the way, we've begun to tell people that that's going to happen right now. See, I think somewhere along the way when we began to evangelize people, and even as we began to think about it ourselves and began to believe it ourselves, we began to think that that Jesus came to fix our temporary suffering. And we we began to tell people, well, you know, Jesus is the answer to all the suffering. And we removed the, we, we removed the gospel from the sin that is our deepest problem and began to only apply the gospel to the fruits of our sin. We began to think that Jesus was the answer for the injustices in the world, and he is. 
But not so that the injustices in this world will not have a place in this world, but so that they will not have a place in the next. He is an answer to hunger and to blindness and to illness and to, and, and, and to all of the horrific and horrible things that we treat each other with. He is the answer to every war. He is the yes to every one of God's promises. But not yet. See, she gets it. But not yet. He is the answer to our sin before he is the answers to the fruit of our sin. The end will not come immediately, he told his disciples as he prepared them to endure until the end. But yet somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we have begun to believe a form of the prosperity gospel. I don't think there's a person sitting in this room. I don't think you sit in this room week after week after week hearing the songs that we sing and the sermons that are preached and think in some way that the prosperity gospel is true. I think you'd all get and understand they are liars. I think you'd all affirm that. We do not believe in sowing our seed of faith and is going to return to us. If we give $100, we're going to get 1000 back. I tell you what I'd like to... Well, not... I'm going to go there. It's a lie. Sorry. We'll have to edit that out. We don't want people to know I'm that real. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, is we get it. We get it. God does promise ultimately to make us healthy, and we are ultimately wealthy because of the gospel. But he did not promise us if we have enough faith that we will never get sick or we will have fat bank accounts. Never said it. Never promised it. In fact, the opposite is true. But, but many of us unintentionally live as followers of the prosperity gospel. Rather than living generously and sacrificially, we hoard our wealth. And just so you know, there's not a person in this room as poor as you might be that's not wealthy in the scheme of this world. Let's just be real about it. We pursue our own comfort and convenience instead of God's mission in this world. Rather than living daily in obedience to Jesus' command to go and make disciples, some of us never face our internal fears of rejection and, and, and a desire to be light instead of, instead of having Jesus known. Because in some way we, we've bought the lie that Jesus just wants us to be okay. Then as we pray and we seek to discern his will, we assume the blessed path is the path of least resistance. Oh, I know this is God's will for me because it all just fell into place. Have you ever said that or heard it said? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read about the prophets who died because they were following God's will, who spoke the truth and then were killed for it? Have you read a little bit of the church history about these men who were so close to Jesus, who were more intimate with him than any? They were the 11 most uh, 
the 11 closest people to Jesus in all of history in a physical way, and yet they are going to die. Ten of them are going to suffer horrendous deaths because of the message that he gave them to preach. And John, according to tradition, they tried to kill him, but it didn't take. The boiling didn't kill him. He survived it. I don't know if he hurt because of it, but he definitely survived it according to the tradition. And so they, 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 they uh, sent him away and, and put him on an island so they wouldn't have to deal with him anymore. Rather than living every day to follow Jesus, we have the nerve to beg Jesus to follow us into our circumstances and bless what we want instead of what he wants. See, every time you've determined that something is God's will, but you are not in it for God's glory, and you are not in it to love your neighbor as yourself, and you are not in it to make disciples, you are asking God to bless your kingdom seeking rather than his kingdom seeking. That is all fruit of a lie called the prosperity gospel that says God is in this for you rather than being in it for himself and calling you to be in it with him for him. See, somewhere along the way, we have lost sight of the fact that we have been called into a mission that will cause our discomfort that leads to our ultimate glory. See, Jesus didn't say life is going to be easy. Instead, he said things like, you're going to find trouble in this life, John 16, 33. He said things like, my followers will be hated because of me, but remember, they hated me first. And that, just so you know, John 15, 18 is in the same context of this table talk. In John, it's the the last night discussions. It's the discussions in the upper room. Earlier on in his ministry, just so you see that this is the scope of his ministry, not just one night. In Matthew 10, 24 through 25, he says that that that, that the students and servants aren't greater than their teacher and master. If they have persecuted me, he says, they will persecute you and they will persecute those of his household. Conflict is always coming. Trials are always around the next corner. We are surrounded on every side by potential battle fronts. These are, these are trials that don't occur in spite of our following Jesus. These are conflicts because we are actually followers of Jesus. This is what he promised you. The beauty is that he prepares us to face them. On this last night in this upper room with his disciples, he helps them see where the trouble is coming from. And that like him, we will face this conflict on multiple fronts. There's three, I think at least three, exhibited in this text We're going to find conflict with the world. We see this in a couple of different places in this text. First, with wolves and false prophets or teachers. Verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, in the middle of the supper, Jesus says that there is a betrayer who is among us. There is a betrayer of me whose hand is with me on the table. He's right here. He's talking about Judas. These are people just like Judas. There's people that are just like Judas that are in our midst. 
who appear to be, they appear to be all that they say they are. They appear to be righteous, holy people. Notice when Jesus says the betrayer is among them, none of them point out Judas. They're just sitting there trying to argue amongst themselves. Who is it? Who is it? Nobody knows exactly because Judas is so good at hiding in his, his sheep's clothing. He's the betrayer. By all accounts, he was for Jesus. While we know, according to the record, that he is actively working against him. Judas may have been the first clear example of a betrayer in their midst, but he wasn't going to be the last. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing, dressed in disguise as ravenous wolves. Wolves eat sheep. They are not in it for our good. They are not in it for a a, a blessing to us. They are here to eat us. And if you miss the analogy there, that means kill you, ruin you, destroy you. They don't care if they just get a leg or they get your heart. They just want some part of you that that, that would end you. Then the church, after Jesus' death and resurrection, as it's spreading across Asia Minor, Paul writing to the elders in the church at Ephesus, Acts 29, or 20, verses 29 through 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Just so you get the full context of this, he's speaking directly to the elders. There's two ways we can see that. He's saying among the church or among the elders. Fierce wolves will come among you, even among your leaders, potentially. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And it wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Jesus. Peter picks up on this and understands this as well. 2 Peter 2, 1, but false Prophets also arose among the people, and he's looking back at this point. Already false prophets are coming up, just as there will be false, prof- pro- false teachers among you. So, so, so this is something the church has dealt with, and this is something the church will deal with. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies after denying the master who brought them, bringing up upon themselves swift destruction. Judas and his like, they will get what's coming to them. Listen, hear this. Peter says it, this swift destruction coming. Jesus says about Judas, woe to him. They're going to get what's coming to them. There's, there's hope in this. I mean, I'm not just telling you this so you'd be afraid of everybody and, and be so skeptical of everyone that you don't know who to trust and you can't just living in fear. Jesus shows us that these, that these wolves inside of the church, they're, they're there, but they're only going to be allowed to do what they can do uh, or, or, or what God intends them to do. They still have a leash. They still have boundaries by which he will not let them cross. Judas could not give Jesus over till Jesus was ready to be given over. No false prophet will be able to ultimately destroy the church. And we do have to get the Judases out. We can't just live with them. We have to figure out who they are. We have to call them out. When we see lies, lies from false teachers and false prophets, when we see wolves in sheep's clothing within our church, they need to be removed. 
We don't have to live in fear with them, but we do need to be aware of them. Jesus is making us aware. False prophets, false teachers, it is a real thing. But it doesn't, this, this conflict with the world doesn't end with the world's influence within our body. See, there's a, a wider world that we will have conflict with. In verses 35 through 38, there's another commissioning that Jesus provides to his disciples. You remember when I sent you out with no money bag, knapsack, or sandals? Did you lack anything? He's referring to back in Luke 9 when he had sent them out. Luke 10 when he had sent out the 72. First he sends out the 12, then he sends out the 72. And he told them to go empty-handed, basically. Accepting hospitality from anyone who would give it to them. Expecting hospitality from people, in fact. But here he's showing us that there's going to be something different as a result of his death. In fact, he intrinsically ties his death and his sacrifice back into the reality that things are changing. Instead of hospitality, you're going to find hostility. Instead of a welcome uh, gesture to come in and sit down and stay at my house, you're going to say, get out. Because we don't want the trouble you bring here. It happened a couple of trips ago to Senegal. We had the opportunity to go to a village that's near uh, Kappa, and when we got there, the, one, of the, one of the village leaders, I, I think he was a leader, he was somebody, that, I, he was somebody in the village that had enough uh, ability in the village to go and g- gather all the leaders. Anyway, I got to story with him, I got to tell him the gospel, and he was the most reactive person we've ever seen. Uh, I mean, he had physical, bodily reaction. When he heard that, that Jesus was dead and then he is alive, he's like, like he, he, he didn't jump up, but his whole body moves forward. His eyes almost pop out of his head. Uh, it, it was astonishing. He had, he, mo- most people didn't pay any attention to the kids uh, running around distracting us. He was so in tune with the story. So his, he wanted to hear it so desperately that he kept shooing the kids off, which by itself is a distraction of its own. But as he's listening to it, when he would come to the end, he's like, this is the truth, and I'm not the only one here that needs to hear this. We all need to hear this. So he takes us to what's called the Bantaba. It's this uh, uh, central area where, where we're able to gather, and, and he brought all the village leaders into it. It's the center area of the village, and so we're surrounded by huts in this big central area. The village leaders are all gathered under this awning, sitting on this bench, and we are able to preach the gospel to them, and here's their response. This is going to bring us trouble. We're not sure we want it or not. Now, they weren't openly hostile to us. It's not like they were tearing us apart or, you know, cutting our heads off or anything crazy like that. But they were not welcoming us in because they know the trouble that comes with the gospel. A couple quick notes in verse 37, just, just so that you can see this. In verse 37, Jesus says, uh, For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is Isaiah 53. It's vital that you see that this is Isaiah 53 because, it, well, first off, it's, it's maybe the clearest, most uh, uh, um, obvious connection with Jesus fulfilling the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We, we see here clearly that he applies that to himself. 
But then also at the end of that, at the end of his talk about going out prepared, he talks about in verse 37 or 36 that, that you got to buy a sword. Now, just so you he is not calling us to violence against people. He is not calling us to arms. It's not wrong for us to own weapons. It's not, but, but most people that I read from, there are people on both sides of this. The vast majority of the people that I've studied and read on this week uh, and last week, um, they, they, are, they, they view this as a metaphorical phrase that Jesus is making reference like he did in Matthew 10, 34 and in Luke 12, 51 through 53, that he's not come to bring peace but a sword. And then, and then later, when, when uh, he is going to uh, stand in the, be in the garden praying and the, and the soldiers are going to come, already we know that they've got two swords with them. We find out in the story that it's Peter has one of the swords. And when they come up to arrest him, Peter, in all of his, uh, well, whatever you want to say about Peter, in, in, Peter decides he's going to defend Jesus with one of these swords. And he ends up cutting off the, the, the uh, chief priest's servant's ear, and, 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 and Jesus says, stop, no more of this, and he puts the ear back on. Now, we believe that this is a metaphorical reference in, in this passage that Jesus' followers are to be prepared, not with physical arms to fight a physical battle. This is not an us-against-them war, but to prepare us to live with the spiritual provisions that he has made. Did you lack anything before? Go prepared knowing that you will not lack anything now. Be prepared to go and and give an answer for the hope that you have. Go prepared to preach the word in season and out of season. This is the sword that he sent them with. The word of the gospel that would, that, 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 that would bring division, inherently bring division from those in the world and those who are with Christ. Those who he would later say in his prayer, his high priestly prayer, you are in the world but no longer of the world. Because inherently in the gospel and following Jesus, we are divided out. We are separated unto him. So we see this conflict with the world. (laughs) Again, not to be afraid. We don't have to live in fear. That's not the intention of why he's preparing us for this. He's preparing us to, he's making us aware that there will be conflict with the world inside the church and outside the church. And there will be conflict with the devil. Look in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, in the English version of this, it sounds like, oh man, he's talking directly to Simon. And he's speaking exactly. He, he's, he's saying to Simon that, that Satan wants Simon, which is Peter. If you, you remember back, it's, there was a point where he said, who am I? And, and, and they said, you're a prophet. The people say you're a prophet. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter makes this confession of him as the Christ. And, and Jesus says, your name will no longer be Simon, but it'll be Peter. But here he calls him Simon And it sounds like he's speaking exactly to him. But in verse 31, both of the yous that are there are plural. So quite literally, we should read this verse this way. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. And then in verse 32, he begins to speak directly to Simon. But I have prayed for you. Because he knows what's coming. He already knows what Peter's going to face. And we see that. Peter, Peter's going to face the, the reality of, 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 of failure. He's going to face the reality of the fact that he's going to deny the Christ. 
But, but before we get there, just, just recognize that this is conflict with the devil. Now, this isn't the first appearance of the devil in this, in, in this passage, in this, in this uh, story, because the reality is just at the very beginning of 22, we see Judas being entered into by the devil, by Satan. And, and, and whether that means he's being influenced by him or being fully possessed by him, he is intimately involved with the trouble that these people are facing. He is intimately involved with the trouble we face. In a day and age where we have bought so fully into the idea of science, and I don't want to denounce science. I'm not trying to say that there's not some good that comes from science. But in a day and age when we have determined that we can find an answer for everything, we have negated the part that the, spirit, uh, the, 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 the spirits of darkness, the devil and his demons, play in the reality of the struggles and the fight that we face. And we cannot do this. We cannot mislead ourselves behind the hostility that we face rather than the hostility we would hope to receive is a spiritual enemy. Behind the, 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 the wolves in sheep's clothing is a spiritual enemy. That's why when Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, told them in, in, at the end of his letters, he's closing, them out, closing it out and preparing them with, with his final words to, to endure. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our war is not with the people in this world. We are not sent to destroy them or to defeat them or to overpower them with brute force. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't need physical weapons and physical armor nearly as much as we need spiritual armor and, spiritual, and a spiritual sword, which is God's word. We're fighting over whether we should be allowed to have guns when we should be taking up the word of God and preaching it in season and out of season. And we're not turning to it in faith and hope and, and trusting that God has us. We're spending more time over arguing over a constitutional uh, privilege that God never wrote. You get that God didn't write the Constitution. When we're ignoring the very power that we have to make a difference in the world. To find protection for ourselves and protection for our people. Sorry, that's not even in my notes. That one's free. Sorry. I'm serious, though. We bought a lie. We're being fed a lie. We need the truth. Why is our nation sick? Why is our city sick? Because they are trapped in the darkness that's ruled by spiritual forces. They need the truth of God's word to be going out from among God's people. They need us out there wielding a sword on their behalf. We cannot be ignorant to this fact. The devil and his demons are at work. They are seeking to sift you. Not just them, us. They want to treat you like the chaff. is with wheat. We watch it happen in Senegal. They sift the, the shells out from the peanuts. They sit there and crack them, and then they sit there and shake after the shells and the peanuts are all together in one basket. They sit there and shake, and the, and the light shells lift to the top, and the weighty nuts settle to the bottom, and then they're able to just scrape them off the top. Satan doesn't even know it, but he's helping us purify the church. 
He's helping us find out who doesn't really belong. But we shouldn't let them go that easy. We should make sure they hear the truth. And behind every struggle we face in this life, there is a spiritual enemy. I appreciate J.C. Ryle's comments on this passage. The devil is always working against the Christian church, taking away the good seed from people's hearts, sowing weeds among the wheat, stirring up persecution, suggesting false teaching, and encouraging divisions among Christians. The world is a snare to the believer. The flesh is a burden, but there is no enemy as dangerous as the restless, invisible, experienced enemy, the devil. We got to know this. We've got to be made aware of this. We do not, like the world, we do not need to live in fear of it. The devil can only do what he is allowed to do. He may be a lion, but he is on a very short leash. He can only do what God would allow him to do. One day he will face justice for all the evil he has done. So we don't need to be afraid, but we do need to be aware. And finally, the third piece I think we see here is conflict within ourselves. In verse 23, we see them begin to question among one another. Oh, it's not me. I mean, who, who's, who would do such a thing? I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about. It's not me. We don't want to be the worst, do we? You know, really, just as long as I'm not the worst, I'm okay. I can kind of cruise somewhere in the middle and not get a lot of attention. I don't even want to be up there with Thomas because that's just too much. Like, I, I'm just going to coast somewhere in the middle. I'm not, not, not going not to ruffle feathers. I'm, not, I'm just going to trust Jesus and sit here silently. We don't want to be the worst. For a lot of us, we want to be seen as the best or the most blessed, I guess, if you will. Truth is, even in seeking to not ruffle a bunch of feathers and seeking to just coast on through, we're still seeking a greater blessing than others get. Because we're trying to get all the good stuff from Jesus while not enduring any of the bad stuff that comes with following him. That's still selfishness. That's still self-will. That's still personal self-kingdom building and not Jesus' kingdom building. But you see it immediately as, a, as, as they're sitting there arguing. And, and we don't know exactly the chronologi- chronological space between these two events. But it seems, that, at least in Luke's telling, that, that here they are trying to figure out who's the worst among them. Like, who would be the betrayer? And somehow that, that leads to a conversation about, well, maybe, maybe we can't know yet who's the worst. But who do you think's the best? I, I think I'm pretty good. Maybe the reason that... Maybe the reason that um, that Jesus calls out Simon here is because Peter, you know, he's such a vocal person. He's so out front that he's fighting hard to be out in the front. And he's trying to make a name for himself here. Maybe he's the one leading this conversation. Regardless of where we stand, none of us like to really think about who we truly are. None of us are as great as we like to think. Because every one of us are possibly Peters. Who would say, I'm ready to go with you to death and prison. I'm prison and death. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow you anywhere. Well, wait a minute. 
Do you? What's your life look like this week? Have you risked your comfort and convenience, your standing in your neighborhood, the way people view you? See, we have a conflict with the world. We have a conflict with the devil. And we have a conflict with ourselves that rages at all times. That's why Peter, (laughs) interesting Peter, is the one that figures this out. Others saw it, but, but Peter so clearly writes it. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Jealousy, enmity, strife, competition, gossip. These are works of the flesh. Wage war against them. Your self-exaltation, your desire to be noticed and affirmed and loved by God's people at cost of Christ. Not by your gospel pursuits. Not by your, by your becoming a servant. But in some way, stepping up over people and oppressing them with your, with your presence and your opinions and your, and, and, and your selfishness. The, the, the ones who lead the Gentiles do this kind of thing. They lord it over them and they act like they're benefactors to them, like they're doing some good to them. What a crock. They're feeding on them for their own purposes. They are using them for their own justification and they are advancing themselves at the cost of others. Beware of this tendency in yourself. I'll just tell you, I I long to be honest with you. I know that this is at work in me. I fight every day against it. And I don't doubt that there's people in this very room that need to be fighting against it. Now, there's a lot of difficult truth here, but, but, but let, me, let me move us now as we begin to work towards this close. We have to endure conflict, but Jesus makes certain of our victory. Peppered all the way through this passage, we see him reminding us of the good news. He bestows on us our greatness in verses 26 and 30, both times. Well, first he says in verse 26, but, but not so with you. Uh, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Uh, he goes on and talks about how, how he is the one who is serving them. He came not to be served, but to serve. We are being served by the very power of God. In spite of the conflict we face from without, in spite of the spiritual conflict we face, he has come to serve us. Then in verse 30, I am assigning you, uh, let me start in 29 for context, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table. There's a specific promise here for the apostles, but don't miss the fact that we are assigned by him a place at his table, a position in his kingdom. There's nothing the world can do to stop this because Jesus has promised to bestow on us our greatness. 
He prays for us to be preserved. In verse 32, he is telling Peter, and he's telling all of them that, that they have, that they have, that the, the, Satan demands them and, and wants to sift them. He says, but I have prayed for you. And he's interceding on our behalf. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He still intercedes what he's done for Peter in that passage he does for us. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, Paul tells us this, that he is interceding on our behalf. And by his stripes we are healed. Verse 37, back to this place where he draws in this beautiful reference to Isaiah 53. Our atonement, our perfection, our forgiveness is bought by his suffering. Brothers and sisters, we may have to endure, but he makes our victory certain. And just so you can see maybe a broader, bigger picture of this, I want to just share with you a couple of passages, like Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. I want you to listen closely to the ways that we were trapped, the ways that we were bounded, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual enemy, the spirit that's now at work in in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. (laughs) The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, this huge contrast is coming, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The things that bound us in death, the world, the devil, and our own sinful flesh now plague us in life, but we are alive because of Jesus Christ. We live forever because of Jesus Christ. And no conflict that comes can remove us from that truth. No conflict that comes, no no conflict, no battle we must endure can change that. And again, Paul writing to the church at Corinth says this. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us, by the way. Jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. He can knock us down, but he can't kill us. The world can come at us and and tear us apart and cause us all kinds of trouble, but it cannot end us. It can persecute us, but it cannot cause Christ to forsake us. They cannot destroy us. There is nothing that can separate us from this. And he closes this passage, this thought, just a few verses later, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. Every ounce of what you endure in this life prepares you to enjoy the victory he has made certain for you. As much as we need to be aware of the conflict, we need to be aware of the hope that we have. We need to be aware. We don't have to be afraid because he wins. And because he wins, so do we. Let's pray. Father God, (laughs) may we know this hope full well. As we come today, we hear your word, we know that the conflict begins and ends with you. That the suffering does not define us, that our suffering is not in vain, but there is purpose and intention behind it, and there is no suffering that can cause us to cease to live to eternal things because you have bought us and paid for us by your blood. So may we walk in hope, aware of the coming conflict, aware of the trials around every corner. But may we walk in hope of the fact that they will not end us. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, Spirit, by your power. Amen.